As we continue our study in the parables tonight, the parable of the Good Samaritan, as I often remind you, as I did this morning, I want to again remind you that it is excruciatingly important that as we study God's Word that we remember the hows, the whys, the wheres, what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it, why he's saying what he's saying, and why he's saying it when he's saying it. And so this particular parable is one of those ones that you have to really read back quite a bit before you get to the passage that we'll look at tonight. And I want to do that for you because context here is everything. It helps you understand fully, completely what it is that the Lord was saying when he spoke this particular parable. It, again, is a familiar parable to many of us, maybe to most of us. And sometimes it's missed in its interpretation because people don't take the time to read what it is that Jesus is actually trying to communicate. And while there is a central truth that's often gotten, and for the most part is usually gotten, um, there's one that's often missed and, in fact, is usually missed. And that's this whole parable is about God's grace. And to help us understand that, we'll pick up tonight in Luke chapter 10 and in verse 17. And it says, and then the 70 returned with joy. Now they'd been out, they'd been sent, and and these disciples had been doing all kinds of crazy things. They'd been healing, they'd been touching people's lives, they'd been praying uh, for demonic spirits to be removed from people. And they come back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The Lord's been transfigured. He's empowered the disciples to go. And remember at that time, these authenticating miracles, the things that Jesus had sent the disciples and the apostles out to do, were done chiefly for the purpose of authenticating the ministry of Jesus. And so they began to do all kinds of miraculous things. And in this case, goes on, and they, he said to them, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, the only place that Jesus could have seen that happen was from where it happened, which was heaven. Jesus was before the world. He was here before he was born in that sense. He's always been God. He is eternal. And so when Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. And nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Even in being given tremendous power and authority by Jesus himself, You need to be very, very, very careful that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice. Now notice the source of rejoicing. It's always been the same. The reason that we can rejoice tonight is the same reason that these 70 returning from this miraculous time in ministry could rejoice. It's the same reason that we rejoice tonight. And there really is exactly one reason. Because your names are written in heaven. Amen? That's why we rejoice. Ultimately, behind every tale, every story, every parable, 
every picture of grace, every sound Bible doctrine, justification and maturation and sanctification. We're rejoicing because what Jesus did on Calvary's cross and the reason that he could say what he said to the thief on the cross, he didn't say to the thief, hey, go get baptized or you're in trouble. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so Jesus is drawing attention to salvation by grace and through faith. He's saying, your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why you rejoice. Not because you heal people. Not because you can cast out demons. Not because you can speak great and mighty and wonderful things in my name. But you rejoice because grace has touched your life. That's why we rejoice. Any other type of rejoicing, though it could be appropriate, I I rejoice when I see other people come to Christ. I rejoice when I see the church well. I, I rejoice when marriages are healed. I rejoice when prodigal children come home. I rejoice over the great things that God's doing. But the primary reason that we can all rejoice is our names are written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. That's the reason. Because if all we ever did was church, notice Jesus didn't say, well, you better do church right. You better do five songs, an intro, an offering, and you better make sure that it never goes more than an hour and ten minutes. He didn't talk about how to do church. He didn't talk about specific doctrines that are essentials in understanding you know, who we are as Christians. But he talked about the central doctrine that makes us all believers. And he goes on, and then Jesus then rejoices in the Spirit because of this. Notice what he says. In that hour. Okay, so it's important to put these things together. So he says, look, rejoice because your name's in heaven. He says, in that hour, the same time. These are not disassociated passages. If you have, like this happens to be a Thomas Nelson Bible. If you happen to have one of these particular, then you're going to have a few titles in there. Those titles aren't scripture, folks. They're helpful reference tools. They're little breaks in the action. They don't necessarily link together the truths of Scripture themselves. It says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Aren't you glad that salvation comes by grace and through faith? and not through sheer force of intellect, will, and intelligence. Amen? Amen. I am. Because if I had to figure out what I needed to do to get saved, I would have biffed that one big time. It wouldn't have happened. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight that all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. So he's speaking of this work that goes on within the Godhead itself. The Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father. In fact, the three are one. And the revealer is the Holy Spirit. So it's really a passage that shows us clearly the working of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit is the revealer of both the truth of God and the sin of man. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, 
So you can see this is kind of a mixed crowd. He would not have said those words. Those things wouldn't have been said by Luke were it not a mixed crowd. In other words, there were not just believers gathered there. And these things are unbelievably important for us to understand the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the context is, praise God, that by grace and through faith your name is written in heaven. And then he goes on to say it's a work of God and God alone. Then he goes on to say and turns to the disciples, people who knew them, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. In other words, you've gotten to see things that not everybody has gotten to see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. You see, he's linking back now the Old Testament prophets. King David himself, I'm sure he was speaking of. David wanted to see Messiah. He wrote about Messiah. The 16th Psalm, the 22nd Psalm, the 118th Psalm. As David penned those Psalms, he's speaking of these things of which he would have had no knowledge whatsoever. Speaks of crucifixion a thousand years before Jesus is crucified. He said, David would have loved to see what you've seen. And have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And here's where it begins to unfold for us. And behold is the next phrase that begins the parable of the Good Samaritan. So people are listening. Jesus turns privately to the disciples. He said, you guys are blessed. All the things you've gotten to see, gotten to do, gotten to hear. You spent two and a half years with me in ministry. We've been roaming around Judea together. You've watched me heal. You've now gone out and healed yourself. Isaiah said that the Messiah would come and he would give sight to the blind. You actually got to see it happen. Daniel said one would come and he would be the sin bearer. You got to see it happen. He's speaking of grace. He's saying, you've seen Messiah. And so it's in that context that we now come to our passage tonight. Hold that in your hearts, because then this parable takes the color that it's supposed to have, the flavor that it's supposed to have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight and Lord, just for bringing everybody out, getting them here safely. Lord, for your word, which is powerful. It is sharp, Lord. It it cuts. It gets to the, the heart of the matter, the joint, the marrow. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would speak to us as your people. Help us to understand and to know, God, the power of your grace working in our lives. Lord, help us to never turn to legalism. Help us to never turn to the bondage of rules. Help us to never turn to the bondage of ritual. God, would we always be free to watch your spirit work. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus.
Amen. And now verse 25 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. We find a question. So the question comes from what Jesus has just said. And we know that what Jesus just said took place in an hour or two with people sitting there in a mixed crowd where he has then turned to the disciples and given them a central truth about what had gone on in the Old Testament times. And so now the parable unfolds. And behold, a certain lawyer. Now this would have almost without question been a member of the Sanhedrin. They were religious attorneys, if you want to look at it that way. Law profession is a wonderful profession. In this case, the law was almost exclusively for the Jewish people a theocratic law. In other words, the law of God imparted to the people, and it was decided, in essence, in a religious court. And so that religious court was comprised of members of the priestly tribe. They, they were normally Levites. And, and so those Levites would try the weightier matters of the law, just exactly as Jesus would say. And so when something would come up, you all have your oxen out in a common field, and they're, they're, they're out there doing what oxen do, which is eating. And one of them gets a little frisky and decides he wants to gore one of the other oxen. Uh, if that oxen died, then you would go to the religious rulers and they would decide what it is that the law said about the goring of an oxen by somebody else. And what you would find is the Bible actually speaks to that. You need to re render back to that person that which they've lost. There, there was a fair and equitable trade within uh, Jewish society and within the law itself. And so they would decide these things. Seems like a legal matter to us. But then the law and God's word were not separated as they are today. And then a whole, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Now, if you've ever had the pleasure of doing a deposition or you've been in a court setting, you, you know how pleasant it is to be grilled by lawyers. Saying, teacher, Rabboni. They acknowledged who Jesus was. Jesus had been teaching. And he asked a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? What is it that I need to do? You just got through talking about grace. You see, grace is on the horizon. The joy of it, that salvation that we have that comes by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus just said, look, the prophets wanted to see what you have now seen. And yet they didn't. So you rejoice that your name's written in heaven. What do I have to do to get me some of that is the question. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He said, look, you're an attorney. You're asking a legal question. Jesus completely avoids the actual question that he asked, by the way, which I think is quite cool. 
doesn't really answer the question that he asked because that's not the actual question he's asking. Do not do battle with Jesus with questions, okay? It doesn't work out well ever. He knows what your little wretched heart is thinking. He knew with this guy too. He knew what he was getting at. And that wasn't the question he was asking. He was asking another question. So what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? And so he, and that he being that certain lawyer, answered and said, you, you can almost see him standing up, Well, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and your soul and your strength, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You can almost see the Oxford English coming out of him. You know, the agnostic. I love this. And he said to him, you've answered rightly. Go and do this and live. You see the irony in this? It's actually pretty hilarious when you think about it. You see, Jesus basically answers the question with the question. He doesn't phrase it as a question, but he's really saying, look, you want to quote Bible to me? Okay, let's see what you can do with quoting the Bible. Because it's not you knowing what the Word says, it's you doing what it says. So why don't you try loving the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Let's start there and see if you do okay with that. And here's the kicker. No human being has ever loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, and their neighbor as themselves perfectly, which is what the law required. 100%. There's not one of us in here that can say that we've ever done that. We try, but we fail. This man would have tried. He would have failed. And so grace is under attack. Your name being written in heaven. You, you see, for them, they felt they had a special place with God. Look, I am a Hebrew attorney in the law. I've studied the law my whole life. And I'm going to trap you with my little question here. I'm going to give you something, and you're going to have to refute it. And if you refute it, then I'm going to call you a heretic. And notice that Jesus doesn't refute what he said. He says, amen, brother, go do it. You have fun with that. You whoop it up while you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's in that context that Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he first starts by talking about grace. He then gets a question from the crowd, from a legalist, an intellectual question, a scholastic question, a question that was, that was framed in a way to frame Jesus. And look what Jesus does with it. You see the opposition that Jesus is already facing in this passage is going to hound him all the way to the cross. 
These same guys are going to follow you. They're going to be in the crowd. They're going to be part of the ones egging the crowd on. We don't want this man to rule over us. Because they had heard Jesus say, the prophets were waiting for the day that you're seeing right now. The kings wanted to be where you are right now. But they didn't get to see it. You get to see it. Notice he made no... Don't you think Jesus knew this guy was in the crowd? He could have actually pointed this man out and he said, and you over there. We don't know what his name was. Simon. Simon, what do you think? Jesus let him... Voice this question. And it's, it's awesome how the Lord turns this in on this guy. Higher critics always do this. People looking for a fight always do this. People who have no desire, generally speaking, for the truth do this very thing. That's why very often, you know, people will come, especially Bible college students, people who have gotten, you know, maybe a note from their you know, some friend that they know that claims to be an agnostic or an atheist, and they all they want to do is try and ask some question that you can't answer. Save yourself a headache. Don't get into it with them. Because what they're really attacking is the grace of God. People can't grasp the grace of God unless you grasp faith. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't come to Christ any other way. You do not come by intellectual assent to Christ. It's not by persuasive argument. It's not by truth compounded upon truth upon truth and just so much truth that eventually you just go, okay, I give up. I'm going to accept Jesus. It isn't that way at all. Eventually, you have to make that quantum leap from the world that we live in to the world of faith that says, I believe by faith that Christ died on Calvary's cross, he was buried in the tomb, and he was raised three days later, and he lives forevermore. You have to believe that. You're not going to get a photo of the, you, there's no video of the events, okay? There, there's no YouTube page. There's nobody that wrote, there was nobody sitting there with, you know, like a, you know, a 2,000-year-old Polaroid camera snapping shots. You've got to believe by faith that that happened. The tomb is empty. And these guys are sitting here thinking that Jesus is still alive and He's speaking to them. He's already speaking in the eternal sense about salvation that's come to people by faith. You see, this person is the one that always tries to trap. They, They always have a gotcha question. They'll ask questions about original language. They'll ask questions about versions of the Bible. They'll ask questions about the missing books of the Bible, about where the 12 tribes went. They will ask all kinds of questions. And the question that they need to ask is, what do I believe about Jesus Christ? That's the question that actually matters. Jesus throws the man's question right back at him. What's written in the law? How do you read it? You see, what this guy was thinking was the law's got to be the place to go. And so he throws the law at Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, let, all right, let's go to the law. You, go, you tell me what that says. 
you almost see Jesus asking, hey, has anybody got a Torah scroll? Let's go, let's go get this. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. You know, they wouldn't have had chapter and verse. But he goes to tell us, hey, anybody got it? You got your finger on that particular verse? Why don't you read that to us? Or Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You, give us that one. You know, the love your neighbor as yourself thing. And Jesus is going, okay, let's see what it actually says. Did you catch the little subtlety in the man's question? Because he trapped himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an accurate rendering of the original language. In other words, what must I do to get something that I didn't work for? You see it? What must I do to get what's going to be given to me even though I didn't earn it. Isn't that what an inheritance is? The man falls into Jesus' trap. What must I do to get something I never worked for? Because that's what an inheritance is, isn't it? If you get an inheritance, that means you got it from somebody else and you didn't earn it. So the man actually asked the right question. But he uses the wrong way to get it. What do I got to do for it? Well, you can't do anything to warrant an inheritance. You can't do anything to earn an inheritance. An inheritance is simply given to you. It comes from somebody else's riches. Usually a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, rich Uncle Ted. I don't know. It comes from somebody, but it doesn't come from you. And you can't earn it. That's why we call it an inheritance. You get it from someone else. And so Jesus traps this guy. We can't do anything to gain eternal life. The subject of Jesus' conversation with everybody is, look, your name's written in heaven. You rejoice in that. You can't do anything to get that. That's a gift. Jesus told the lawyer to do something that was absolutely impossible. He says, okay, I'll go do that. You're right. That is the law, that is the commandments, condensed down. Love your Lord, your God with absolutely everything and your neighbor perfectly as you love yourself. You, go do that. Perfect. Good job. About that time, the guy's going... <clears throat> hate when that happens. Wasn't, didn't see that one coming. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, actually through verse 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we previously, both Jews and Greeks, that are all under sin, as it is written, there's none righteous, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman Christians saying, look, there's not one of us that's going to meet that standard. By doing. For all have turned aside, verse 12 says, they have become together all unprofitable, and there is none who does good, not even one. You see, no one ever 
but Jesus loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. No one but Jesus ever loved his neighbor as himself fully and completely. Nobody has ever done the best that they could ever do in those two things. There isn't anyone. There still isn't anyone. And so Jesus says, look, now that you understand what I'm getting at, now that you know that that's completely, 100% impossible, you can't do it because the guy's sitting there thinking, well, how do I get out of this? I'm in a real mess now. He just told me to do something that's impossible. What is it that I can do to fix this? The, the do, you can see the smoke coming out of his ears. It's like, ah. But he, wanting him, verse 29 says, wanting himself to justify himself to Jesus, said, who's my neighbor? You see him trying to get around it? Well, I can't do it. So let's get hung up on who my neighbor is, okay? Let's see, is my neighbor the guy that lives next door to me? Is my neighbor somebody I like? Is my neighbor somebody who's nice to me? Is my neighbor somebody who speaks my language? Is my neighbor somebody who's actually uh, a friend? He asked Jesus another question, trying to avoid the inevitable question. Trying to get out of the whole thing. And Jesus answered and said, So now you know why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, it wasn't this isolated thing about this dude who got mugged, it wasn't a guy, about a guy who made a bad choice on which road he went home by. It wasn't about works in that sense. It was about grace. And then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we'll travel actually on part of this road when we're there in a little over a month. The Jericho Road, as it descends down through the, the Hinnom Valley, actually through the Kidron Valley to the Hinnom Valley and around behind the Mount of Olives and then down through some very steep canyons, and uh, it's still a, a kind of wild place. There's actually still Bedouin sheep herders that live in that area. And at that point in time, it was very desolate. Now there's some housing tracks and a few things out there, but it, it's still largely empty land in many spots. And when you traveled it, you traveled at your own risk, and you always, always, always traveled during the daytime. You never went at night. Because that road was known to be a road of thieves. Because it was the only road connecting the two largest cities in all of Judea. Jerusalem and Jericho. It was also the next stop that had water. And so if you traveled into the Jordan Valley, chances are you went on the Jericho Road. And the thieves knew that. And a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 2,800 feet down to be exact, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wound him, or excuse me, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a certain priest came down that road. 
Now, interestingly enough, Jericho was also the home of the priestly class, the Levites. Many of them had second homes in Jericho. And when they were not on duty serving in the temple in Jerusalem, Jericho is where they lived. And so as they would transit this, when they were on their particular course, they would teach 144 courses throughout the the normal uh, teaching through what we would call the first five books of the Bible. They would each get a section of it, and for about two weeks, uh, they would teach, and then they just kept rotating. Well, when they were off, they would go to Jericho. And so this is a normal place that the Levitical class, the priest, would go. And a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. It's real easy to see what Jesus is getting at. Religion very rarely does anything for anybody. But a certain Samaritan. Now to understand, the Samaritans live slightly north and a little bit towards the coast of Jericho. It was an uninhabited area. It was widely believed to be no man's land. It was the tribe of Gad that inherited that particular region. It had all kinds of problems. And those that lived there were generally half Assyrian and half Jew. And they were hated. They were, in essence, half-breeds as far as the Jewish people were concerned. And because the Assyrians had been the oppressors for 165 years, and they had at one time marched all the way to Jerusalem under Sennacherib, he had stood on Mount Scopus, which is two mountains from the center of Jerusalem, Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem itself. And were it not for the angel of the Lord recorded by the prophet Isaiah coming out and wiping out 185,000 of the, the encampment of the Assyrians, the Assyrians would have probably wiped out the Jewish people. And so the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. In that region today, one of the, one of the cities that's in that region is Nazareth. So when the question is posed, can anything good come from Nazareth? The reason being it was in Samaria. But as he journeyed, he came to where he was. That would be the man. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Mercy overflowed his heart. Compassion is easy to understand as as love in action. And, and what happens is this man sees this, this man who's fallen on hard times. You see, this is what real love does. Real love covers hatred. Real love covers a multitude of transgressions, Scripture declares to us. Real love takes action when fake love takes flight. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal. Now bear in mind, that journey is about 28 miles. It can be as much as 65 if you travel all the way down to the 
Dead Sea and come up along the edge of the Dead Sea and wind your way back to Jericho. But the short route would have been about 30 miles. That's a long ways to walk when you've got an animal to ride on. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. Now bear in mind, an inn at that time, much like an inn uh, in the story of Jesus' birth, probably would have been what we would call a B&B, bed and breakfast. And it wouldn't have been anything like any bed and breakfast you've ever been to. It would have likely been a single room, if it was a really nice one, with several families sleeping on the floor, a couple of generations at least. Brought him to it, and maybe there would have been a stable outside, much like the one that Jesus was born in, which was probably a, a cave. Could have been an enclosure, pile of rocks. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, I want you to notice something. He tends to this man in the morning. He stays with him. On that burrow, on that donkey, on that animal that he was riding on, no doubt was probably a donkey. On that donkey, he could have been home that day. Donkey can easily walk four or five miles an hour. If you're on that donkey, you, he could have been home for dinner. Not only did he not go home for dinner, he stayed the night with the beat-up dude. The next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, be the same as you going to your job, working for two full days, two eight-hour days, the amount of money that you normally would get at a job that takes care of your family's needs, the wages that you would make for two days. He pulls out two days' wages and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And it doesn't stop there. And whatever more you spend when I come again, in other words, this is a place that this man frequented. He transited this way. Maybe he had business, we don't know. But he went back and forth and it was at his own peril. It was at his own expense. It was at his own uh, moving away from his plans. When I come again, I will repay you. And so Jesus then now asked the lawyer another question. So which one of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Do you see it now? We often miss it. You remember his question? Well, who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you about some neighbors. Hey, neighbor. Well, I'm not helping you. Did you notice that it was two religious guys? that left the man for dead? Religion will leave you for dead. It is relationship that takes time to save your soul. And of course, the poor lawyer just got a beat down by Jesus. A nice one. But a beat down nonetheless. And you can almost see his head. And he said, he who showed mercy on him, 
All right, you win. All right, I'll take my medicine. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, it's a story of grace. By this time, I think the lawyer was probably beginning to wish he'd never tried to trip up the Lord. I can pretty much guarantee you that. Not really bright when you attempt to mess with God, just so you know. And he tried to confuse the issue. He tried to kind of do the sleight of hand thing. Let me ask you a question that doesn't have anything to do with this. I'll ask you some other question. And try and get everybody's attention off of the real issue. There's three parts to this story. I think we can wrap it up in a very few minutes. Pretty clear what they are. First, it's a story of ruin. Can I tell you something? When you're dying on the side of the road, <laughs> repeating the Ten Commandments ain't going to help you. Let me repeat that for you. Telling somebody to say the Ten Commandments when they're dying on the side of the road is not going to help them. That's what religion does. That's what religion does. Religion comes along and says, well, obviously, you've got a spiritual problem, brother. That's why you got beat up. You know, obviously you did something wrong, and God is not on your side. That's why you're here. So why don't you do a few, uh, let's do some Ten Commandments. We're going to do a few Hail Marys, a couple of Our Fathers, and we're going to get this whole thing squared away. And oh, by the way, say, the, you know, say some other prayers you heard at church. You see, that's what religion does. Religion spiritualizes this thing to say, well, who's my neighbor? The dude's dying. He doesn't need a lecture on spirituality. He needs a helping hand, and that's what grace does. Grace sees the need and does something about it. Religion sees the need and says, well, you probably brought it on yourself. You must have some secret sin in your life. That's why you're down there in the dirt. And you've probably met some of those folks, haven't you? They come along and try and tell you, you know, well, you know, why don't you just confess your sin and everything's going to be fine. Bro, I just got hit by a car. Well, you must have some secret sin in your life or you wouldn't have got hit by a car. You know, sometimes good people get hit by cars. Sometimes people who love Jesus get cancer. Sometimes people who have done everything in their marriage possible to save their marriage end up in a divorce. Sometimes people who absolutely, without question, love Jesus with every bit of love they've got have some pretty major issues in their life. And asking them why they got beat up in the first place does not help them. Grace helps them. Grace begins to bind those wounds and heal and minister and touch and soothe. And it doesn't ask questions that don't need to be asked at that moment in time. A person who's hurting doesn't need to figure out why it is they got there. They need to be helped. Grace steps out of its comfort zone and helps. You see, this man fell among thieves. 
And the long and the short of it is, we've all been naked before God at some point in time in our lives. Amen? We've all gotten a beat down at some point in time in our lives. Some of us have taken some hits that we rightly deserve. There's no doubt about it. I have. There's some of the things that have come to my life. I'm kind of glad I didn't get all that was coming to me, actually. But there have been times when I've taken a beating that I no way did I deserve that. And I've listened to people try and spiritualize why somebody's got some major problem in their life. In Jesus' name, don't do that. What they need is help. They don't need your opinion. Keep your opinion yourself. Pray more and do more. You know, when we turn our backs on God, the only way that goes down is to go back up. You need to get that person back to where they can hear the voice of the Lord. It's also a story of rejection. You see, not only is it a story of ruin, because we've all been through it, it's crazy how many of us have suffered some kind of spiritual abuse from somebody. And it happens in church. It happens in the, in the lives of pastors. People, you know, believe it or not, pastors get abused too. People in the pew get abused. Pastors get abused. We do the wrong thing. And we do it for rotten reasons sometimes. We don't need to repeat those mistakes. You see, the rejection here was first based on the rights. Well, you know, he's, he's a Samaritan. I'm going on the other side of the road. He goes to a four-square church. I, can't, I go to Calvary Chapel. He didn't have that. Dude's a Baptist. I mean, come on. There you are on the side of the road. Can you imagine? Think about it for a second. Well, do you, do you really believe that the bread and the cup turn into the blood and body of Christ? I ain't helping you. Just go on off to hell. But people do that kind of stuff, don't they? They do. I've had countless people in my office telling me that some pastor told them that they were doomed to go to hell because of the way they took communion. Ouch. Pretty sure that wasn't Jesus. When we start caring about the rights of a religious order over the love that we ought to have for God's creation... His people created in His image, we got something seriously messed up. You, you see, we can have truth, we can even have tradition on our side, but if it avoids the reality of helping someone in need, then we need to throw that right, right where it came from. You see, that was the priest's story. The Levites was the rules. You see, they couldn't touch him. He was unclean. So, so rather than, than break the rule, which would have made that Levite also ceremonially unclean, 
and he would have had to gone and done the rite of purification. He would have had to gone and wash himself in a mikvah and, you know, lift his legs up and, you know, praise the Lord and be cleansed of, of the filth of touching. Instead of even thinking about doing that, he just said, well, if he dies, he dies. And that's the rules. People often ask me why I hate legalism so much. This is why I hate legalism. You know, it's wonderful. We need to have right doctrine, for sure. Right doctrine is, is important. But having right doctrine does not take precedence over the need of someone who's dying. And this is where the gospel comes in. That man needed the gospel. He needed to know what God's love is. He didn't need to know about the Levitical law. He did not need to know what it meant to be a faithful Jew. He needed help. You know, and sometimes we get so concerned, well, you know, the guy is going to come into the church and he's dirty. Hallelujah. I pray for more dirty people to come into our church. I pray for people in need to come into our church. I pray for people that are hurting to come into our church. And I pray that when we find people who are dirty and hurting out on the sidewalk, that we bring them into our church. We get all worried about, you know, well, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, when we start caring more about insurance than we do about souls, we're caring about the wrong thing. We need to care about who God cares about. And he doesn't care about rituals. I think rituals have their place. They can be uh, refreshing at times. But when someone's in need, let it go, man. The legalist, the rule bearer. Can you imagine what good would it have done Ask that poor Samaritan, prop his head up. You know, okay, can you repeat the Shema to me? The Lord thy God is one. Now, what he needed was oil on his wounds and wine to heal the infection. He needed to be picked up and carried and given a meal and cared for. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that that man understood the love that that Samaritan put forth. I guarantee it. And I also guarantee you that he couldn't have cared less to ever listen to another spouting of the law. Because he'd just been beaten with the law by somebody walking right past him. And so it finally becomes a story of redemption. Jesus simply says to the man, <laughs> go and do likewise. You see, when the Apostle Paul expounded on this particular thought, he said, though I have tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am as a sounding brass. Though I had faith to remove mountains, and have not love, I am worthless. 
You see, right doctrine is important, but right love is more important because it is the love of God that brings men to repentance. It's the kindness of God that causes us to see that God loves us in the first place. And we need to not miss that truth in this wonderful story. The Samaritan bought, brought this poor man to an inn and cared for him. He did the right thing. He said, look, whatever is owed on this man's account, I'll take care of it when I come back. Basically, the truth had to be dragged out of the lawyer. In the end, the lawyer just left him in the same place that he was when he found him. The law says do. The gospel says it's already done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to never pass by. Lord, help us to always be looking. Lord, help us to have the same care and compassion and concern, the same grace, the same mercy, the same tenderness, the same gentleness. Lord, that you had for us when we were lying in a ditch. Lord, when our lives were crashed upon the rocks, you reached down from heaven and picked us up and set our feet upon the rock. You kept us out of the miry clay. You cleansed us and washed us and made us white as wool. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would never, ever, ever miss an opportunity to be your hands of love. Lord, that your grace would ooze out of us. Lord, in gracious living, gracious loving, gracious kindness. God, could we put the word grace in front of everything that we are and all that we will ever be. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you. Fill us with your grace. Lord, help us to love those who are the least. Help us to pour out as we've been poured into. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.